Well, we're working through this uh, series, 1 Peter, and uh, we're, we're taking, an, a, some would say, a slow path. I think it's a steady pace, a kind of considered pace. It gives us the opportunity to really reflect on some of the words that we find here and to, to be confronted by what was first heard by a group of people who maybe just like some of us uh, had just come to faith in Jesus relatively recently. Uh, churches had not been established for a long time as believers in Jesus. The spread of the gospel was um, not hugely established by this time. So people were coming to faith. Now, the people who are the hearers of this are those who, uh, from their background, um, were believers uh, as Jews. That, that was their heritage. But they were living very distant from their location their historical, geographical location. They were living in a very kind of modern context. That might uh, speak to some of us in that we're trying to work out in our minds um, how we negotiate the world that we now live in with the demands and the calls upon the faith in which we've come to trust because there are kind of challenges and difficulties and we're trying to work it out. I think we can get some real help here. Uh, we can help us, it helps us to understand. Why does it help us to understand? Because what we see here is God through His Word, by His Apostle, giving instructions for people who are living in a particular context and encouraging to them to think through how to live as believers in what was a challenging environment. Straight away, we're going to be working from verse 18, straight away, the very first word that we see is a word which makes us immediately think, well, this hasn't got anything to do with us. On the one hand, we might think that this hasn't got anything to do with us because it's talking about slaves. That might be our first response. So you see that word, slaves, your first thought might be, nothing to do with me. Your second thought might be, this is exactly the reason why I'm uncomfortable with the Bible. You know, I'm, I've had lots of conversations with people who've, the journey has been something like this. I, I do believe in God. I, I do believe in Jesus as the Son of God. I've got no problem with that. I even believe in the kind of, the core ideas of the message of the gospel. I believe in that. I believe that his death on the cross is sufficient for me. Uh, I believe in all of those kind of things. But I've got a problem when it comes to the Bible because it condones all sorts of things which I just can't come to terms with. Uh, and that, I think, as what, you are, what we are saying, if we say that, is we're saying I'm a believer in Jesus, but what I'm doing is I'm cutting away from me one of the greatest support and the help and the authority and the structure upon which the church down through the past 2,000 years has established itself on, which is an understanding that what we have in the Bible is God's ongoing word for every generation that comes to terms with faith in Jesus. What I also recognize is that when we see certain things like this, unless, unless we have a framework in which to understand how to translate contexts of the past into contexts 
of today, we are going to be confronted with problems. So what I think part of our journey this afternoon is to equip us all with some tools on how to look at the Bible, how to use the Bible, how to think about the Bible when it seems to present to us things which are really difficult. It's, a, it's an equipping job. It might for some of us also be the first moment where we've realized that although it might say things back there, it doesn't necessarily mean that we literally lift them as they are and try to kind of ram them, force them into the world in which we now live. And that's patently obvious with this because we're talking about slavery. We're talking about the very notion of slavery. That's got a problem, hasn't it? The world, humanity, let's forget the Bible for a moment, humanity has always had a problem with the issue of slavery. Every culture, every generation throughout time has got a problem with the issue of slavery. The idea that one human being has some kind of ownership uh, and uh, demand which is beyond anything that is reasonable on another human being. In our media today, in, our, in the current press that we have, we are recognizing that although we, we abhor the idea of slavery, we are recognizing that humanity, people in our country, people in the West, people in what we proudly describe as a, as a 21st century progressive society, are still behaving in a way which is problematic in the way that we still see issues of modern-day slavery. There are problems, aren't there? So, straight away we're saying there is an issue. So, how do we get from where we see something like this up on the screen uh, and we say, well, how do we move from that and still say, but we're opposed to slavery? I, I think that's an issue for us. Doesn't the Bible seem to almost condone slavery, because what it does it say, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. That's what it says. That's what it says. It says that as a, accept, in other words, it sounds like it says, accept <laughs> slavery, doesn't it? That's what it seems to say. I think there's a few steps that we need to take. The first is this. We need to take a journey. You know, sometimes you get a better understanding of where the Bible is coming from when you don't dive into just one specific issue on, in one verse, but you get the opportunity to step back and to see what's going on across the whole story. Let me take you way back, way back into the Old Testament. Uh, and into the ancient world, the beyond, you know, way back, beyond the kind of Greco-Roman world that we see here. Take you back to Egypt and Babylon. Take you back to a culture where the concept of slavery was a fundamental principle on which empires developed and were built. Every empire in 
the ancient world was built on the concept of slavery. And, and, sla- and we see it within the Bible, don't we? We see within the Bible the cultural way in which people were treated. So we see God's people in Egypt who ended up, although they, end, they went into Egypt as free agents uh, under Jacob uh, and under the kind of the protective umbrella of Joseph, once one pharaoh who is uh, caring and supportive dies, another pharaoh, however long that period of time takes, there is a transition where they become slaves. We see that principle going on. What we also see almost within a few books, we see this. We see God's people are being taught a completely, in fact, they are being given laws with a completely different attitude towards people who they take into where they can conquer their land and where they come under the umbrella of God's people. In other words, there is a marked difference. On the one hand, we have this idea, if we conquer the land, you become a possession which we can dispense of, which we can, be, we can treat as literally an asset. And we see God's people who are being told, when that happens, you are treat, to treat them in these humane, good ways. You are consider, con, to consider them as essentially part of the family. And uh, there is a point at which there is a liberation moment for those who are taken in that way. What is God doing through His people? He's saying to the world, isn't he? He's saying this. Our normal, our normal human instinct is to be totally oppressive one to the other. I'm going to oppress you, and as soon as I take over your land, that's it. You become my possession. That's the way it was across all societies. But God's people, as God's present uh, display of what God is like, He is saying, but you don't do that. Now, I wonder whether there was any way in in our human understanding, is there any way in which we could possibly, we could possibly have taken a leap from absolute possessions, which was the cultural norm, to where we are today, where we absolutely abhor the whole idea of slavery. Isn't God, in a way, He's saying, I understand that we are like little children and we're going to have to go on a long journey of understanding. And it starts way back there in the Old Testament where God's people are told to behave in a completely different way. And then we come to a New Testament letter to Philemon, who is the master of a slave who has run away. And the behavior of that slave who has run away means that the way that he should be treated should be really difficult. You know, he, could, he has now crossed the line and beating or ultimate death is within the remit of a slave owner. And Paul writes to Philemon and he says this, I want you to treat him like a brother. What a journey. What a journey God's people are being taken on. Do you see what's happening across the whole picture of the Bible? 
God is taking us on a trajectory which takes us further and further along the line of redeeming our attitudes towards people. That, I would suggest, is why we can now get to a point where we see this and we can say, well, there is a pattern of behavior there which doesn't necessarily mean that we take that pattern of behavior and try to shoehorn it into 21st century lives. Whenever we do that, we, we, we have bizarre situations when we try to do that. We can say, well, I, I, you know, how many wives did Abraham have? Well, surely that means that I can have uh, that many wives. Can we do that? Of course not. Is that a toolkit for us to be able to come to the Bible and to be able to say, when I am faced with, with passages like this, which on face value, let me step back and let me see the transition that God is taking His people on, the journey that He's taking us on, so that we might see that the progression is more and more of the redeeming of those who are in slavery. <laughs> now that goes on two levels which we're now going to look at. So there's a first kind of big picture. Now let's get into the detail. Because what we're actually talking about, let's remind ourselves what Peter is telling his individual listeners. He's saying the first section that we looked at two weeks ago is, look, how do you live in an empire, the Roman Empire, which is uh, opening out, which is beginning to pour out persecution on those who are believers in Jesus? He says to those who are Christians, respect, respect the authorities. What? Respect the authorities, those who are pouring out opposition towards you. Now he's saying, let's take it one step down. We looked at that kind of big state issue. Now let's take it one step down. Let's go to your day-to-day -day lives. Your day-to-day -day lives. You as individuals, and he says this, right, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. In other words, he's saying now, straight away, your attitude has shifted. Because you are compelled by Jesus, who is now your Lord, your attitude changes towards those who have immediate responsibility over you. That, that's, that's dramatic, isn't it? I mean, straight away, I think we could take that and we could say, well, that, that has demands on us in the 21st century a side of the issue of slavery that changes my attitude. It has the mechanism to change my attitude day to day in the, in, in the life that I live. Of course it does. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. What kind of harshness are we talking about? Well, let's go on a bit. Let's go to verse 20. How is it to your credit? We'll come back, don't worry. Uh, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? That's what a harsh master can look like in the first century. That, it, they can beat you. <laughs> and, and Peter is saying it's, it's not to your credit at all, is it? If you receive a beating when you've done wrong. 
Well, straight away we say, well, hang on a sec, nobody, nobody, no, nobody should receive a beating. But within, within that world, at that moment in time, then there is a moment where we say, well, that pattern of, it's wrong, but it's as it was. And he's making the contrast and saying, look, I'm not talking about when you have transgressed as an individual. I'm talking about something else. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. There's the difference. Do you see, he is not talking about just unjust behavior in the workplace as a slave under mastery. He's, he's, he's narrowing it down and he's saying, look, there are, there are moments when there is an unjust pattern of behavior from somebody in authority over you because you are conscious, your conscience is before God. Let's, let's really drive it in. We can carry on and we can see how, that, how this works itself out. How is it to your, your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Let me just ask, let me stop there for a moment and say, whoever receives punishment for doing good. Who receives punishment for doing good? We don't, do we? The good that Peter is continually defining in his letter here is not just generally good things that we do, but a pattern of life which is defined as good, not by society, but a pattern of life which is defined as good by God Himself, by righteousness and a consistent life before God. That is good. Now, if we're living a good life before God, the things that we do day to day will, by nature, they will be good to people around us. They will be good to people around. They should not be bad. <laughs> you know, there are many times when the church has done bad things in the name of God. There are many times when Christians have done bad things in the name of God. That, let's, let's get straight here. We're saying that if we are living righteous lives before, good, before God, the day-to-day -day lives that we live to those around us, the impact will be good. It should be good. Now, why would anyone ever be beaten for doing good? Well, he wouldn't. What Peter is saying is that there are going to come moments when the confrontation, when the opposition, when that which becomes a burden is not because of what you do, it's because of who you are. Not because of the things that you do, but because you stand as a believer in Jesus. That's what he's really nailing down. And he's saying, right, when that happens, 
when confrontation comes, because we believe in Jesus, not because we're being arrogant and bigoted and all of those other horrible, despicable traits which at times have presented themselves as supposed claims of being believers, but simply because we believe in Jesus. This is the context in which Peter's writing. He's saying this is what's going to be unleashed by the Roman authorities. What happens when there is unjust treatment, not on a state level, but on a local relational level with employer or slave, master? What happens when that, when that goes on? What should your attitude be? How should you respond? Your response is to do good. Let me remind you of what he said earlier on. He says, remind yourselves that you are free. In verse, in verse 16, which we read earlier, he says, live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That statement applies in this context as well, doesn't it? He's saying effectively to people who are owned as slaves, you're free. There were, there were during this period of time and subsequent years, there were a number of uh, slave uprisings during the Roman uh, Empire where there was a militant body of slaves that would rise up against the system and against masters uh, of, of slaves. There would be a general uprising. What Peter is essentially saying is, when the confrontation comes because of your faith in Jesus, you don't rise up. There was a massive unleashing of persecution against believers during these first centuries of the Christian faith. There were slave uprisings, but there was never a Christian uprising. How did Christians respond during those first centuries where there was persecution being poured out? Well, Rodney Stark writes a fascinating book, The Rise of Christianity. He reflects that going parallel with all of the persecution, there were a number of other social things going on, including massive issues of plague and massive issues of famine. Two social issues that were going on in various pockets of the Roman Empire during the persecutions against Christians. What happened? How did Christians respond during that time? Christians shared their food, and Christians stayed in the city and nursed the sick. How opposite is that to a rebellion and an uprising? That is doing good. That is... Precisely what Peter said earlier on. Confound your opposition. <laughs> don't, don't rise up against them. Confuse the world that opposes the message of Jesus. 
On the one hand, they might hate the fact that you are claiming to love a God who is outside of state control, but on the other hand, they are confused because you stay with them and you love them and you serve them. Wow. I think that is incredibly powerful. I would also suggest that is precisely why, in human terms, of course I believe that it was the power of the Spirit of God that was moving God's people so that the church might expand during those early centuries. But in human terms, it was precisely that attitude of we will love and we will care in spite of the opposition I'll not take my bat and ball home because this empire hates me. I'll stay with my neighbors. You know, my neighbors who might not love me because I'm a Christian, but they're dying of the plague or they're dying of hunger. I'll share my food with them. I'll stay and nurse them. Man, we don't, we don't even get close to those kind of opportunities or demands. And they are both. But if our hearts were moved by not, not fighting over the individual words and what does this mean and what does that mean, if we take the spirit of this attitude and we say if our lives were transformed to live like that in this world, we would be displaying the gospel in a way which is consistent with the way Peter encourages his first hearers to respond as well. That's the gospel. Why is it not all of the gospel? Because <laughs> it isn't. That's not all of the gospel. Bec and why is it not all of the gospel? Well, because we see a similar kind of issue of plague going on in West Africa right at the moment, don't we? It's tragic. It's terrible. It's horrific. Can't even begin to understand what it must be like to be living in that context. I pray for everybody who is involved in helping in that context. I, 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 it is just a sheer delight to know that the nurse who contracted Ebola has now been released from hospital. And I just think, well, isn't that fantastic? That is, praise God for that grace. And yet at the same time, there are countless thousands of families that have been wrecked by this disease in West Africa. There are a huge number of people who are doing incredible good in that context, Christians and other organizations, and thank God for all of them. But they are not all the gospel, are they? That is not all the gospel. The gospel goes with two things. Firstly, these individuals are being opposed because they claim certain truths. Let's see what they say. How do we live in an unfair world? Well, firstly, look at what it says in verse 21. Three points. To this you were called because Christ... To this you were called because... Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. 
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So in other words, Peter is saying the lives that you live, the decisions that you make, the good that you show is founded, it's rooted in the life of Jesus, who also did what? Came into this world, was opposed by human beings, was was unfairly treated, and died because he came to serve. You see that? He died because he came to serve. Peter is saying, essentially, that's the foundation. In fact, he goes even further, doesn't he, saying, he leaves you an example. Now, the death of Jesus on the cross is functional. It does something. The death of Jesus on the cross is a substitutionary work. He dies so that I don't die. That's the message of the gospel. And that has come under attack over recent years. Uh, It's been described as cosmic child abuse. The idea that Jesus would be crucified by a father in heaven is cosmic child abuse. And all of the emphasis has been placed on the idea that Jesus' death is an example of this kind of uh, self-sacrificing love. And we would say absolutely not. It is a substitutionary work that is going on. It is not cosmic child abuse. It is the very ultimate display of a loving God towards humanity who have rebelled against Him. The very idea that God would construct a salvation where His own Son is sacrificed so that I might live and not die. That is the gospel. But when we hold on to that so tightly and and we hold on to that to the point where we abandon the other aspect which is Jesus is also an example. You see that? That's what Peter's saying. We can't get away from that. He's saying Jesus' sacrificial life, it did something, but it is something. It did something functionally. He died so that I don't die. But it it does something from an example point of view. And Peter is saying this, you have to understand that when you enter into faith in Jesus, he becomes an example for us to live by. He is an example. Secondly, how can we do that against unfair, unjust patterns of behavior? Verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. (laughs) I'll put it like this. We can suffer injustice... Because there is a hope, and I don't mean just a, it might be hope, there is an assurance of future justice. You get that? It's what Jesus did. 
his, his future hope is in two senses. On the hope that his father would be in this plan of salvation with him. And when he turned his back on him, he would redeem him and de- define him as the name, as the one who bears his name. He is that. But on the other hand, there is the hope that those who unjustly crucified Jesus would be judged for that unjust action. And we can live every single day in that hope when the reason why we are opposed is because we believe in Jesus. In other words, we don't have to rise up. Not because people will get away with it. Not at all. But because we know justice will be done. Now, in generally speaking, in, the, in, in, in our geographical location, that, that is relatively benign. But you know what? There are many parts of the world where that is absolutely, desperately important. When people, because of their belief in Jesus and because of the intolerance of certain groups, whatever they might be, whether they are secular groups or whether they are religious groups, when there are individuals who believe in Jesus who on a day-to-day basis are losing their lives, there is the hope of future justice. And every individual who opposes Jesus by opposing his people is going to be judged. And that judgment is going to be worked out in one of two ways. It's either going to be because those who oppose Jesus through his people finally come to see Jesus as the great Redeemer and all of their, all of their sin is dealt with at the cross. That's what happens with Paul who becomes the architect of Stephen's death. I mean, I just find that amazing. Paul becomes the architect of Stephen's death. And the murder of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, is resolved for Paul at the cross. And for those who do not finally respond to Jesus, there is the final hope of judgment in Jesus. As Jesus being the judge. That's the second. There is hope of future justice. That's why we can do it. Thirdly, he, bore his, him, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There's the first thing. There's your identity. Our identity is not in the suffering. Our identity is the fact that we are bought by Jesus. We are now his people. Do you see the difference that that makes? If I was a first century slave under a harsh master who might beat me for doing good, I can say, do you know what? In, in the quietness as I, as I might be suffering physical pain and wondering whether the next blow will take my life, I can say in my mind, in my heart, before Jesus, I am not owned by this slave master ultimately. I am owned by Jesus. 
I am redeemed by Him. My righteousness is in Him. That is my hope. As the next blow falls, as I wonder whether I will survive, I am redeemed by Jesus. That is my identity. Secondly, we see this. For you were like sheep going astray. That's what I was, but now I am His. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So my identity is in Jesus and my future hope. It is well with my soul. My hope, my security, my future is in Jesus. How powerful is that? How totally redeeming is that? How does that totally change our attitudes when the opposition is because of the fact that we love Jesus? There is, we're going to stop, (laughs) okay? The reason we're going to stop is because there is just a bucket full of other stuff to work out as a result of this, but we haven't got time. So I'm going to see how, I'm going to think about how we might carry on and work through this because the implications of this little section I think are massive for all of us. I can live with injustice because of my faith in Jesus. But the question that we might need to think about is, well, does that mean that we just allow injustice to carry on? Do we just allow that to happen? Well, come back next week. And we might have a look at that.